Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. Conrad, thank you so much for joining Chicago Capital. It is truly an honor to have the uh, modern day Marco Polo on our show as described by Forbes. Matt, so good to be here. Thank you. I think we first need to start from the top. I mean, what does it feel like to be ascribed as the modern day Marco Polo? Where did that come from? And I think that might let listeners a little bit know a little bit more about your background. <laughs> it was uh, it was a nice little soundbite, I guess, that they that they gave me. But uh, yeah, no, I travel's always been my passion and obsession. So I've traveled to about 100 countries. Uh, been obsessed with travel since I was a kid. I was the son of to uh, political refugees who immigrated to the U.S. And then I just had a desire to explore and see the world. I've always balanced that with entrepreneurship. So I've always been, you know, working and running companies and while uh, trying to squeeze in as much travel as I could. And then I've finally been able to combine it, find both passions. So I uh, both run a business and uh, and have it be focused on travel, which to me is like the, the perfect marriage to do something you're obsessed with. Like if in the past, my prior life, I'll either be running a company or working and thinking about travel or traveling and thinking about working. And so now it just gets to be completely harmonized in, uh, in one thing. Yeah, no, I love that. I think it's a perfect confluence of passions. I think if you were in another entrepreneurial pursuit or starting a different company or in a different career, people might look at, wow, he's traveled to a hundred countries. How does this guy have so much time for vacation? Good God. I mean, but I think for you, it's a perfect mix. Yeah. You, uh, you don't usually see the, the 15 hour, 16 hour work days on, on Instagram. It doesn't make for as exciting of a photo or video, but my life is pretty simple. It's, uh, it's family business and travel. So kind of keeps things focused. So how did all those travels, how did that lead to Trip Scout? I think we'd love to hear the origin story behind, uh, behind the company. Yeah. So like I said, traveled to about a hundred countries, started a travel blog in the very early days of blogging that uh, ended up getting a pretty sizable influence and allowed me to get, um, you know, just purely on for fun on the side, but allowed me to get deeply plugged into the travel community and get to know a lot of destinations, a lot of top travel brands, uh, a lot of the early content creators and influencers. And I, you know, I just saw fundamental shift happening with our society's relationship to travel. If you look at over the last 10 years or so, everything has changed. So why we travel, how we travel, what we hope to get out of the experience, how we share those experiences with our friends, like what it means for you know, our identity and who we are based on how we travel. Yet, if you look at every product and service you use in the entire ecosystem, nothing has changed since 2001. Like with the exception of taking an Uber from the airport or booking an Airbnb, it's the exact same experience as it was you know, in very early days of the dot-com. And it was just a completely hyper-transactional industry that were selling all the same commoditized booking inventory for the exact same price. And they were just trying to outspend each other and paid ads to, to get you to book. And, and I just thought that generation of companies was just missing what travel has become for so many of us. And I uh, wanted to create the, the company that led that shift for the next generation of travelers. And when I launched, I, I had a very clear thesis on 
where the world was heading and what was missing, but I didn't really want to take my own views as, as gospel. So I started building some MVP products and my co-founder and I gave our personal cell phone number to the first 250,000 travelers who signed up for one of our products. And we just had thousands of conversations and we, it was really simple. I said, look, I travel a lot. Anytime you're going on a trip, anytime you're coming back from a trip, anytime you're planning anything, like just text me, call me, email me anytime. And, you know, my wife really got annoyed at me for <laughs> 250,000 people uh, have my personal cell phone number and being able to hit me up at any hour of the day. But, you know, to me, that was the unscalable, unsexy stuff that just got us to know more about the psychology and the behavior of the modern traveler than I think any of our, you know, soon to be competitors. And uh, it was, you know, I think like we're a very data-driven company and both, you know, everyone on the team is very data-driven. And when you launch a company, you don't always have data because you don't have products or users. So we found our data by just talking to as many people as we could. And it really helped shape, you know, the product uh, that we have built since. How did that decision to be so high touch with those first, you know, those first cohorts, how did that originate? Did you realize or had you been sort of taught or learned on your own that you need to do things that don't scale at the very earliest of stages? You know, Paul Graham's kind of seminal piece that he teaches to, you know, Y Combinator startups. Is that is that an idea, sort of a startup uh, mantra that you wanted to follow? Or was it just you figured you needed to get the data, you needed to talk to customers, and you didn't even realize that you were following a playbook that had already been established for a lot of successful companies? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I've definitely read and resonated with that Paul Graham piece and, you know, some of the like, uh, you know, some of the stories you hear from startups that have done similar paths. But I mean, honestly, I think it's just when you're a founder and you're picking something that really does feel like your life's work, you're just obsessed and you just can't help but like figure out everything you can and try everything you can. And I knew going into travel, the space that we we're going into, there was a reason nothing has changed since 2001. And that was, it's dominated by some very rich oligarchs, you know, who basically have owned the entire industry and outspending everyone. And so I knew going into it that we really had to differentiate and we had to find, you know, specifically with travel, we had to find compelling customer acquisition stories that was not trying to compete with. TripAdvisor for SEO or Priceline and Expedia for paid ads. So I knew we had to get obsessive about that. And then I knew that a lot of the startups have failed because, you know, they maybe created something cool and someone used it once and then they forgot who it was six months later. So I knew we had to just nail this like product market fit and engagement piece. And so we kind of looked at that as a dual track process from day one. You know, we did a huge study of why every startup that tried to disrupt those companies have failed and we and deconstructed of all those reasons. And uh, I think it just led to one of the things we had to know more than everyone. And like, you know, like we were just saying, the data had to be a huge piece of that. And that was the only data that we could probably get in the early days. I love that. That's, that's such a great kind of, I think, methodology that you guys are able to successfully kind of in place at the earliest stages and kind of look around and see what's been done in the past. Why didn't it work and adapt your strategy using all those data points? I'm curious about the status of the product today. So maybe listeners who haven't heard of TripScout before or have heard of it, but never really used it. What are, what's kind of the, you know, consumer, the, the, the journey through the platform in your mind for, you know, customers who are looking at trips or coming back from trips, how would you describe, you know, the, the tool? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, the core, the core piece of what has driven our product is if you love travel, you might only travel a few times out of the year, but you think about travel every single day. And so we're creating that first daily experience, your daily digital home for, for the modern traveler. And, you know, and that's evolving to become the first super app for travel. And so what we do is we, we really hit you on the inspiration and entertainment phase. So we keep you in the know about all the topics and places you care about. And, you know, we curate our technology curates and basically pulls together all the most engaging content from around the internet. That includes, you know, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, blogs, like tweets, like anything that is relevant to you in a highly personalized way. We give you that bingeable piece. So you care about, you know, family travel and cabins. We'll show you that while someone else might be all about top restaurants and top cocktails around the world. And so we build that, uh, we build that and help you also inspired about destinations you're planning a trip to. And then, you know, the second piece of that is we turn that inspiration into action. So anything you find and discover, you can easily just one tap, save things to an upcoming trip, as opposed to like, Copying and pasting into a spreadsheet and then pinning all those on Google Map and doing all this. It's just a seamless like entertainment into action where you can plan your itinerary, plan your map, uh, build out exactly the kind of trips you want to have. And then uh, you know, that's been our focus, just building the most engaging piece and doing that loop, growing and driving more uh, more engagement and you know, giving people the joy of travel every single day. And what we're working on and what we will build on top of that is a next generation highly personalized booking platform commerce platform financial products for travel basically anything you can tr transact with which right now is about a trillion dollars in online spending for travel that we will have a reason to have a hand in all of that because we know exactly what you're into and what you want to do so by making the fun parts of travel planning and entertainment more fun will help you solve all the hard parts of travel and your revenue model in the future, do you, is it going to be sort of a revenue share affiliate program where you're sort of taking a percentage on if they do use your platform to make bookings to sort of spend money, you guys will get a, a percentage of that? Or how's the revenue model set up at TripScout? Yeah, so right now, given that the two hardest parts of travel is customer acquisition and engagement, we've just focused on that. We can get into some of like the interesting stuff we're doing on customer acquisition. Um, and, you know, we're venture-backed and our investors believe in that thesis. The converting to, to the, the booking and e-commerce and all of that, we, that, is, uh, that is kind of the most established part of travel. Um, most people don't realize this, but all the inventory in travel, when you think about hotels and tours and transportation and all of that, is heavily commoditized. You can, we can plug into the distribution systems and get access to the same inventory um, at the same prices. Um, and so that is why, you know, the companies are just pretty much outspending each other to try to get you to book through them. Uh, we've really focused on understanding travel intent, personalization based on all the entertainment and planning you do. And so we're able to turn that into recommendations that are personal to you, things that are most relevant to you, uh, products you might need while you're, you're traveling. And so we will get a commission on that. Commissions are pretty sizable in travel. Uh, and uh, and we'll convert that into into bookings, but that's just something we haven't really focused on yet um, because we wanted to make sure we focused on the first two. And 
can't do it all at once. You know, <laughs> you try to do everything, you're going to be mediocre at everything. So no, yeah, ab- absolutely. Be the best, best in the world at customer acquisition for end engagement. Would love to hear a little bit more about the customer acquisition strategies, kind of moving down the PL statement. Would love to hear about your your strategies in place today. Yeah. So this came from giving my personal cell phone number to to everyone. <laughs> I I just watched people plan trips. And I realized something that now is becoming a little bit more understood, but six years ago was not. And that was that there was a shift happening. People or travelers started searching on Instagram before Google. And Instagram was the first spot. And so what we started doing is we just started building a network of accounts. So every top destination, every top travel topic, we built an account for and we built a playbook. So we, you know, we now have a huge network of accounts and we plug into Instagram's API and can, you know, essentially manage or monitor exactly what is performing well and what's going well across probably a thousand posts a day compared to everyone else who's trying to do it based on like one post a day. And, uh, and we've managed to grow that Instagram presence to over 15 million followers and growing at about 2 million followers a month. So if you look at, if you type in Iceland, which is a good, if you're going to Iceland, the first thing you do is go to Instagram, type in Iceland. Iceland.explore is the number one account. That's our account. It's our community. We're essentially our own influencer in that market. And, if you go to Paris, it's Paris.explore. If you go to Chicago, it's Chicago.explore. We uh, and then we have it also for things like you know family travel or best hotels around the world, that kind of stuff. So that drives most of uh, our growth. We of course do a lot of other stuff on other platforms, but Instagram is the most important for for us. Uh, we kind of look at it as social media as the new SEO, and then you know on like I guess we didn't intend this as much, but because we drive traffic from that channel and then because we've done such a focus on engagement where we actually people spend more time in our app than any other app in travel we have started to get a significant just organic app store search traffic where we're now the uh, number two app in all of travel so if you you know we go back and forth with Expedia number one but we rank above you know Airbnb and Priceline, Kayak, and SurfAdvisor uh, and then we're the number one ranked uh, app if you search anything around, you know, trip planner or travel guide or any of that. So uh, we're top 10 for all content, even though we don't produce any content ourselves. So that has, you know, been the second channel for us. But it's, uh, we've really had this focus on, you know, scalable customer acquisition based on organic retention. So you mentioned, you know, six years ago, noticing the, you know, the drive of Instagram changing how people are researching their their travels. I'm curious about the rise of TikTok and if that's impacted kind of your guys' outlook at all and, and what sort of, you know, what you're looking to sort of feed into your platform in the future or today. How has TikTok at all affected, I guess, the travel industry in your mind? Or has it not really made as big of a dent as it has in, you know, other areas? Yeah, great question. I'm super fascinated and into TikTok as a company. We, you know, we jumped on early and have also built a network of accounts on TikTok. There's a different type of consumer experience on TikTok. And I think a lot of people try to compare TikTok to being the new Instagram, but I really think it's more of a new YouTube. Like you go to TikTok to sit back and consume and be entertained. And I took the same lessons. I just you know, I, I found some Gen Z family members and just said, 
go on TikTok. I'm just going to sit here and watch you for an hour, you know? And, uh, and I really study the behavior and the behavior is not the same as Instagram. The behavior is you sit there and you, you let their wonderful algorithm entertain you and you just like binge endlessly. Instagram is much more of like a discovery platform. Like I think Instagram is becoming a little bit of the modern web browser where you're finding things, you're searching for things, you're starting to shop for things, you're starting, you're going to do a lot more of that. And so, you know, we've honestly, we, you know, TikTok doesn't deliver the same kind of results that Instagram does. Like people do not take action in the same way. I think it's really powerful for brand builders, but you know, we're not really a, as a startup, we're more in customer acquisition, not brand building. And so it is kind of remains like a portion of our R and D time while the bread and butter goes to Instagram. But honestly, the biggest thing it does for Instagram for us is the lessons you learn on TikTok transfer to Instagram. Not a hundred percent, but it's the same. That's where, you know, obviously like you know, snore stories you can learn from Snap, reels you learn from TikTok. And so when we see things that are trending, we try to build a little science and process around. We see things that are trending on TikTok and we see it happen there first. And then we bring it over to Instagram. So it's it's relevant, it's connected. Um, we were probably close to a million followers on TikTok across our accounts, but it's you know what it leads. The amount of traffic it drives is is a rounding error to zero compared to Instagram. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that makes total sense, and I love framing Instagram in that ma- in that manner. It is kind of more of a browsing tool. It's more active. It's more discoverability, whereas TikTok is a little bit more. I think just passive. Turn your brain on, and like you said, let the let the algorithm do the work for you. You know, I'd love to. We have lots of founders on the show, and and many of them have started companies in in the past year or, you know, sort of in the six months after sort of COVID changed the world. And, you know, some of their startups are, you know, a response to the challenges or the new opportunities following, you know, the wake of the, or now I guess we're still in the pandemic, but, you know, for you guys, I have to touch on COVID because I would imagine that a travel platform created uh, and the, the COVID pandemic probably brought about uh, maybe a challenging, very challenging and scary time for the company, but I'd love to hear kind of how you all weathered COVID and what that experience was like. Yeah, it was, I would say, the most difficult yet most rewarding, you know, first year, I guess now we're on like 18 months or so of my professional life. We saw our business drop like 99% overnight. The first you know, two days of realizing that this was big, this was here, this was staying, this wasn't the flu. You know, we, we cut every cost, renegotiated every contract. We did everything we could to extend our runway, but also not lose our team. Like we wanted to take care of our people. We built a fantastic team. Everyone, you know, rose up to like make sacrifices. And it was, you know, an incredibly, you know, difficult but uniting time for us. And then, but like on day three, we were like, you know what? This will be the biggest opportunity we'll ever have to disrupt the travel industry. Anytime there's disruption, it's going to create opportunity and we can move faster uh, and we can be more nimble than income, you know, all the incumbents. And so um, we, you know, my co-founder and I like just did a huge deep dive on, all right, what is our bet on what is going to be different? What's going to be better? What's going to be worse? Like how is travel going to change? We sent newsletters to, you know, every one of our, you know, active users and just surveyed them on 
what how they were thinking about this. So we you know went back to our roots of trying to talk to every customer, and ultimately came to the conclusion that this is going to pause for a long time. People are going to do different things as a result, but ultimately that travel will come back. And the longer we're away from travel, the more people are going to crave travel and make, you know, I, I think we're on the cusp of a bit of boom in travel history um, for a number of, you know, both like changes in the workplace, changes in lifestyle perspective and making up for lost time. But, you know, we, we came to the conclusion that, you know, we're not going to do any COVID hacks. Like everyone's doing virtual tours and all this stuff. And we're like, great, that's something to buy time now. But how do we use this as an opportunity to put ourselves in a position to come out of this pandemic stronger? And the number one conclusion that I had was our thesis on organic attention is the most rare and valuable asset in travel. And social media being the new SEO was not going away. It was only going to get accelerated. And everyone, while they weren't planning trips, they weren't traveling, they were they were on their phone and they had a lot of time to dream about travel. So we just doubled down on, on that. And so we actually went into the pandemic with 2 million followers on Instagram. And, you know, that was driving all of our users and everything was growing, everything was looking great. And everyone was like, wow, you guys, you know, have a you know, big audience. And we grew that to over 15 million uh, by just, you know, we, we put our engineering team on. Like, it wasn't just a marketing effort. That was with a couple of people. We put our whole team behind it. We leveraged, you know, Instagram API to get insights. Like we just started, and there was like months of nothing really happening, uh, and then things just started to really take off. And uh, um, now, you know, despite Delta causing the same kind of travel restrictions, the same kind of uncertainty uh, as before, we're, you know, significantly more than 10x our pre-pandemic numbers. We're growing. We've been growing 50% month over month, and uh, you know, it just, it put us in a position where most travel startups either went out of business, pivoted out of travel, or never got started. And most incumbents were kind of on just hibernating and trying to survive. And so, you know, I think it's really allowed us to emerge out of, once we get out of this, as uh, a new new leader in travel. And on, I mean, on the topic of leadership, I think like one area of interest to me throughout COVID and, and interviewing founders has been, you know, leadership through crises and, you know, how different companies responded to the pandemic. And you guys, it really feels like took it as an opportunity. And, you know, that old quote, never let a good crisis go to waste. I feel like that, that there was such a concerted effort to sort of power through and come out stronger than ever. For you personally, you know, do you have any kind of leader leadership role models that you've looked up to throughout your career or, you know, maybe historical figures from afar. I'm just fascinated by this idea of leading through a crisis. And for you, I'm just curious, any sort of people you've looked to present day past that, that you admire, um, or you try and emulate as a leader in some ways. Yeah. You know, I, I rely, like we have a lot of great advisors. I have great mentors. I have great investors. And when this happened, I really, you know, leaned in and tried to talk to as many people and and try to get their perspective. And what I found, there's a quote about this where, you know, a crisis will kill, I don't know, I'm going to butcher the quote, but something about a crisis will kill most companies, like great, you know, great, good companies will survive it and really great companies will be defined because of it. And ultimately what I found was a lot of the leaders I admired 
all had a point where there was some kind of crisis, whether it was the financial crisis or some internal crisis with the company or organization um, that really defined and made them who they were and gave them so much accelerated learning. And, and so I kind of was able to take that, you know, remove myself from the current situation and realize like, okay, life is long, hopefully. Your career is long, hopefully. This is part of a story. And all great stories have this, you know, tragedy that you have to overcome and this plot twist and this climax. And, and so to look at it in that way and then to look back on this time and be proud of the decisions I made, both as a CEO, but also as a human. And, and so trying to take it from that vantage point and talking to so many great mentors and advisors, like, who can look back on, you know, the crisis they had 20 years ago, uh, just really gave me that perspective. And so, I don't know, it, it, you know, while, while there was so much going on in the world, like, you know, the part that I could control was my company. Um, and, you know, we could say, Hey, no one travel, everyone wear a mask. Like we could, we could do the things that were like the right things to do as humans, but we weren't, you know, frontline workers. We, so the thing we could control was our company. And so I just focused on what I could control and, kept that lens and you know it uh paid off but at least time will tell how much it paid off but uh gave us at least helped us all get through it yeah no i think there's i feel like we're just throwing quotes around here today but there's a you know there's that quote of um calm seas don't make good sailors so i think yeah, that's that's yeah. that's it rings so true i think for a lot um for a lot of companies that emerged through the pandemic um stronger than ever and especially the ceos of those companies who are making decisions you know you mentioned yeah. your investors and also like a lot of the mentors you know i try to have is like outside of just business too you know like and it also takes you know it takes perspective like you know when i'm talking to a general and they're talking about a crisis. I'm like, oh, well, no one on our team, you know, thankfully is dying. You know, like that's, it's kind of puts things in, in, in perspective. And I think travel also has that humbling effect where when you travel to a hundred countries, you see a lot of parts of the world that like, living off a dollar a day that did not win the birth lottery. And so like, you kind of have this perspective where it's like, all right, this is a problem that we have to solve but be grateful because you're still better off. If the entire thing collapsed tomorrow, you're still better off than 99.9% of humans that have ever lived on the face of the earth. And I think that allows you to like, you know, some people might look at that as like, oh, you will have less hunger approaching problems. But I think you just can look at it with much more optimism and enthusiasm because you, you know, you just get to solve creative problems and every problem has a solution. It's just your job to try to, find it and uh and you're not living in as much fear uh because you kind of already have that underlying yeah i i love that point too i mean i think that's why you know historical figures often give us so much of a of a perspective and lessons about leadership uh, you know Church, Winston Churchill has always been sort of somebody I've been obsessed with. Um, I, you know, I've been to London and seen where he was commanding basically the British forces out of those bunkers. And once you see the living circumstances that they were in getting bombed every single night, I, I just think there's so much you can learn from choosing disciplines that are not your own if you're in business and generals. And you mentioned, you know, you mentioned people from the military, but political figures. Now, I think it's so true. I think it's so true. But I, I did want to touch on, you know, you mentioned some of your investors and, you know, you're looking at some of the people 
people that you guys have been um, able to sort of get on your cap table in the past. And it's really, I think, some of the who's who of the Chicago VC ecosystem. So I, I just love to hear about your experience in raising capital in Chicago. And, you know, part of me, you know, I look at your guys' company and it's not the, tra- in some sense, it's not the traditional sort of Chicago mold of, you know, B2B software with one to two years of, of ARR traction that you can speak to. And I think you guys are, are an interesting, uh, unique opportunity that probably came across a lot of VCs desks over the past few years. So we'd love to hear about your experience raising capital in Chicago. Yeah. You know, I, I love the Chicago ecosystem. It's, I do think there's just so much more of a, uh, a mentality of, you know, <laughs> get to work, get things done, back up what you say, as opposed to, I think some of the postal fundraising tends to be more on like, you know, luck and, uh, and, and, uh, just kind of, I don't, I don't know, more of a story than that, uh, which, you know, stories are important, but I, you know, I guess I didn't even realize how, because when we raised our round, the number one thing people said was, wow, a, a consumer startup not focused on revenue <laughs> raised, raised around from a lot of great Chicago VCs, but, and we have a couple coastal, like we have Accomplice in Boston and Village Global and 500 startups from, from the Valley, but um, most of our, most of our cap table is in Chicago. We have some, you know, great, you know, like you said, kind of who's who it's like we have, you know, Corazon's our lead. We have new stack ventures on our board. We have math ventures and 25 and dolphin. Like we have, we have some great Chicago, uh, funds and, uh, honestly, like the, I've found the people to be, you know, great, not only great investors, but great humans and uh supportive to founders and um honestly it's i I, you know maybe i just didn't realize that uh, a consumer startup wasn't supposed to raise in chicago but you know we 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 worked we worked hard we we had stuff to show for it and uh we told our story and people people believed in us so uh you know i didn't find it i didn't find it i mean obviously fundraising especially in your seed round is always challenging um, people, I think, don't realize like sometimes how much grind you have to go through. But I didn't find it any particularly more difficult to be in Chicago. I think Chicago is a great, uh, great ecosystem to raise around and build a company. And it's, I think it's just, it's so necessary too, I think for more consumer focused companies like yourself to be funded here and to be, you know, um, to be headquartered here and to hopefully see those successes so that, you know, success begets more success. And it's a sort of another vertical that Chicago can hopefully continue to build upon. And, you know, on the topic of Chicago, I have to ask, you know, in some of our closing minutes, Conrad, you, you know, you've been around the world. And I recently saw Time Out Magazine pulled 27,000 people across the world. And Chicago was ranked the second most beautiful city in the planet on the world. So, Thoughts on that ranking? Thoughts on the Windy City uh, ranking near the top of the most beautiful cities in the world? Chicago is one of the best cities in the world. I mean, when you factor in just like there's like a natural beauty with with the lake and the river. There's the there's the architecture is you know because the city had a chance to rebuild uh, is better than most, and it's livable and it's great food. You know, the Midwest vibe creates a great, like, hospitality perspective. Um, Everyone complains about the weather. And I feel like if it wasn't for some cold, like, one, it kind of weeds out the weak people and (laughs) gives a little bit of grit to the city. And two, 
if it wasn't for the weather, like if we had, if, if, if we were 20 degrees warmer, it wouldn't be livable. It'd be twice as expensive. You'll have everyone wanting to come. And so, you know, I think, you know, back to like kind of the natural beauty, I think the cities that have a natural barrier to the urban expansion is, are always the most beautiful. Like when you think about Cape Town has two of them. You have the ocean and a mountain. Uh, you have like, you know, Sydney, which has the ocean. You have San Francisco with, with the bay, you know, Denver with mountains. Like anytime there's that kind of natural barrier where you just don't see city, you see some form of nature incorporated. I think always creates some of the most beautiful and best cities. And Chicago has that with, with the lake, um, which, you know, if we're sitting anywhere in Chicago, it looks like an ocean. So, um, yeah, I, I would I would rank Chicago uh, extremely high, and uh, I think people should change their perspective that the cold weather can kind of be seen as a feature, if not a bug. I love that actually. I'd never thought of that before. Uh, with the if you know if it was much more you know warmer, the prices would be higher. So you kind of need that barrier to entry. That's actually. A Could you imagine if Chicago's and uh, where Miami was? Yeah. Uh, it would have it would, it would have thirty million people and. <laughs> You know, you'd be paying $4,000 for a studio apartment. <laughs> That's so true. It's so true. All right. Well, I, I'm going to end on a cheap, cheap question here. And I know it's maybe hard for you to answer because you've you've been to 100 countries. But I have to ask it, any highlights, any major spots that you would say definitely should be on everyone's bucket list in terms of travel, you know, whether it be a place, an experience, a city, any thoughts as to that? I know it's a, it's a, you know, a cheap question, but uh, anything at all. I, I'm a big believer that everyone should try to get out of their comfort zone a little bit. You don't have to go all the way out of your comfort zone. Just push those boundaries on every trip. And so for each person, that might mean something very good. For me, that meant Somalia and Papua New Guinea and, you know, road tripping up, you know, the coast of Africa. Like, but for other people, that might be going to the next state. And that's totally okay. I think there's way too much judgment and travel of what place should be considered cool enough or exotic, you know, for lack of a better word. Um, and so I think people should do two things for that bucket list. And, you know, I don't like the term bucket list because I feel like that kind of just implies something to check off. But you should, one, find things that you're that just fascinate your curiosity. So, if, you know, like you mentioned, just really liking kind of the history of Churchill and, and how he handled the war. And so go deep into London. And that's uh, and that would that, be a perfect way to really explore. And then, you know, for other people, or, and then on top of that is to just try to do one thing that, you know, stretches that comfort zone uh, a little bit. And so that's my advice. If I, I think the best experiences I've had have always been not necessarily the places that I've dreamed of going. It's been just the places that, you know, kind of stretched me a little bit. Um, that being said, if you just want to go to a fantastic city after COVID and you're just like, you know what, this has been a hard time and I don't want to push my comfort zone. I just want to go somewhere incredible my favorite cities in the world that I could easily move to at any time would be Buenos Aires, Paris, Krakow, Poland, Sydney, Cape Town, Tokyo, um, Mexico City. That should be enough to get, get started. Yes. <laughs> Cairo, Egypt. I think Cairo is actually one of the most underrated cities, even though everyone goes for pyramids. Uh, but 
I lived there for a couple of years and it has so much more to offer than I think most people expect. Istanbul, for sure, another one on that list. Beirut, I would add to that list. So yeah, I mean, I could keep going, but uh, yeah, I think, and also I think people should be give themselves some grace that their comfort zone might change post-pandemic. You know, and that's that's okay too. You might have to ease back into uh, into the world and into human interaction. So, uh, you know, cut cut yourself some slack if your if your comfort zone has has shifted. Yeah, I love that. That's such great great advice, and I'm so happy I got some cities out of you because selfishly, I'm really looking to plan my first big COVID post you know post COVID trip. So, I got more than more than enough for what I needed. But Conrad, I want to thank you so much for hopping on Chicago Capital. This was such a blast. I I really appreciate you taking the time, and I'm very confident that you know we'll have you back on in the near future once you guys uh, hit your next big milestone. So, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Love what you do. Keep creating great content and I look forward to coming back at some point. Awesome. Take care. Hey.